This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are in Grand Junction, where we heard something that caught our attention. It's about the economy here, and it comes from the city manager, Greg Caton. I think for many years, Grand Junction and Mesa County have really been able to focus on our natural resources being underground. And really what we're seeing the focus in in the foreseeable future is focusing on those natural resources above ground. In other words, this part of the state has depended a lot on oil and gas, which has left it vulnerable to booms and busts. Now, I don't want to overstate this. Drilling is still big here. But more and more, Grand Junction hopes to become a destination for people who love the outdoors and the companies that serve them. We are broadcasting from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. But this wasn't our first stop when we got to town. No, our first stop was right here. I am lying down. And where are we, Kevin Mollick? We're sitting inside one of our trailers in our showroom, sitting on a queen-size bed. Everyone, this is Kevin Mollick. He is the head of Timberleaf Teardrop Trailers. And if we head just outside, there's a kind of pull-out kitchen, huh? That's right. This gives people a chance to get outdoors, but not in an RV, I guess. Yeah, most of the people who get teardrops are more outdoorsy. In other words, these are people who like to go places that a typical camper trailer or RV can't go, but don't necessarily want to haul their living room with them (laughs) and a widescreen TV. Well, I want to mention that you are now one of three teardrop trailer manufacturers in the Grand Junction area. You just moved here. You relocated to the Grand Valley from Denver. That's right. Why? Mostly for real estate reasons. Uh, Real estate was just getting so expensive in Denver. I knew that we were about to expand our business. And looking at space in Denver, I could see that if I needed to double my space, I was going to more than double my rent. Uh, It's just too competitive over there. I don't have that much of a markup to be able to afford to pay twice the rent. Traffic also. There's things like traffic that just drove me crazy. It's a quality of life question. Started looking elsewhere, and why did you decide on the Grand Valley? The environment, mostly, because there were several places I could have found that were really economical. Were they all in Colorado? No, we actually looked out of state, like uh, Houston, Salt Lake City, places like that, too. Hmm. The environment around those places didn't seem conducive to our business. You mean like the outdoorsy culture? Exactly. You build about 30 of these a year, and you assemble them here. But you need a lot of other workers outside of this building to make a teardrop trailer. Exactly. Whether it's welding the trailers, powder coating the trailers, finishing the wood finish. You are not the only company in the outdoor industry to move to Grand Junction. In fact, it was a big deal when a Boulder company that makes bike racks and the like... Right decided that it too was moving to Grand Junction. This is a company called Rocky Mounts. What's missing from this area? What did you give up leaving Denver? Things like the museum and the zoo, we were very active and we went to those a lot. Retail stores a little bit, but we're getting used to that. That's fine. You went from a pretty blue part of the state to a pretty red one. I don't pay attention to that, to be honest. Uh, It was most of this outdoor environment that was so important to us. Was it a tough decision to leave Denver? Uh, No. We were there for 40 years, and the real estate cost and the way of life where we lived 
were just getting more congested. You've talked about expanding. Is there the workforce here if you need it? That's interesting because, no, there's certainly not as many people. But what I found quickly and I was amazed at is the quality of the workforce is far better than I had in Denver. How so? I think more of the people that have chosen to move here, like myself, have chosen it because of the quality of life. So I may not get 50 people applying for an opening. I may only get 10 or 15 but almost every single one of those people are very qualified, sometimes, many times, overqualified. You sold a home near the Denver Zoo? Yes. And I have to imagine that you <laughs> you could buy a mansion here for the equivalent. Is that true? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Basically, we, I mean, it enabled us to pay cash for our home and have some money left over. And that gave us some peace of mind to make this move. Because this move was stressful. We took a leap of faith. Kevin Mollick says some of his friends back in Denver have asked him about the move. And he has a feeling a few might follow him here in the next couple of years. This is the factory floor. You've you've got uh, one, two, three, four Four teardrop trailers in process. We can easily build five in here. What is it like when one gets finished? Uh, It's pretty exciting because... It's when they're born, basically. So when they go out the door, everybody tends to meet the owners and find out about their future uh, adventures. When they're born. Yeah. I love that. Thanks so much for meeting us here. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Kevin Mollick runs Timberleaf Teardrop Trailers, which has moved from Denver to Grand Junction. It's the kind of move Robin Brown wants to see more of. She's director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, and she may be getting her wish. Our workload has increased, uh, I mean, tenfold just since December of 2017. It's kind of unprecedented for our office. Um, The interest, and that's all reactive. So it's all calls coming into us. I understand that you had a whiteboard uh, on which you you, you were tracking. (laughs) And I know that probably sounds really um, like we're from the dinosaur age. But truthfully, the number of prospects we were working with when I first got this job, I could manage in my head. Um, And of course, we have a formal tracking system. But then I realized one day I couldn't keep track of them in my head any longer. So in an effort to always have them, you know, in front of me, I got a whiteboard and then I had to get a bigger whiteboard. (laughs) And now my big whiteboard is too small. (laughs) What are the kinds of companies that are calling? So there are all kinds of companies. They're from all different industries. The only common trend is they're usually owner-operated, so the owner of the company works at that company every day, um, so they are very interested in where the company is located and the quality of life in that place. And the only other trend is the majority of them are coming from really urban, large areas, places like Denver or San Jose, California, um, and they're getting priced out of the market. Their own quality of life is diminishing because of the cost of living, and so they're looking for a new place to do business. They're under 50 employees for the most part, anywhere from five to 50 employees. But there are definitely, there's a broad range of industries. About 30% are outdoor rec. Uh, about another 30% are technology, IT-type companies, mostly software developers. Um, and then the rest are across all of our, you know, healthcare, energy, aerospace. How yeah. often do you get a call and it just goes nowhere? Oh, very often. We have a lot of, um, you know, people kicking tires, uh, and and what happens is some of these companies are doing a nationwide search. But yeah, oftentimes, more often than not, they lead to nothing. Are you poaching? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> and and the, the reason I ask that is, I think, for instance, of the counties in Metro Denver that, yeah. you know, years ago banded together and said, we're going to work together to draw yep. economic development. We're not going to compete against each other. So that may not happen in the metro area. But is it starting to happen in the state where Grand Junction is saying, let's pluck some companies from Boulder, pluck some companies from Denver? Yeah, no. And it's a good question and a fair question. We are absolutely not poaching. We're not reaching out to any, you know, and it's kind of what I said earlier. We're not, we're kind of in a reactionary mode right now. Um, but no, we are not going after any companies in uh, in Colorado. What is happening, though, is we're, we're hearing from companies on the front range. And truthfully, from, you know, if you look at how we should grow responsibly as a state, it probably does make sense for some of those smaller companies who are struggling in the more expensive places to do business and where it's harder to find workforce to relocate to other parts of the state. So they still have the Colorado identity that they want, but they might be, you know, able to grow faster or stay even survive by being in a more affordable place. Robin, what explains this inundation right now? You know, I think it's kind of the perfect storm. About three years ago, our city leadership sat down, actually the county leadership, um, and tried to figure out as we were trying to diversify our economy and you know, we were watching the incredible growth on the front range, and we were still in our recession over here. And so there was a lot of work done on how to better market ourselves to a wider variety of industries. So that, coupled with the incredible growth on the front range and in other parts of the country as well, where it's just gotten so expensive to live and work, um, I think it's just kind of this perfect storm that we just hit it right. Uh, we do have some amazing infrastructure projects happening. The riverfront is a great one. And we did pass recently two school taxes and a public safety tax. And so I think that people are seeing there's a real effort on the part of the people in Grand Junction and the community to improve ourselves. And I think that's resonating with people in other parts of uh, the state and the country. It also helps that you have some rural incentives, I think, that you can offer companies. We do, yes, actually. That's helped a lot. Uh Yeah. Uh, Give me an example of a company that is committed to moving to Mesa County. You know, a good example is a company called Phoenix House. They were in Detroit. They manufacture um, carbon neutral modular homes. And so they Car- were. Car- carbon doing... neutral modular homes? So yes. These are homes, obviously, that are manufactured and placed on site, but they're, they're efficient, I guess. Yes. But they were in Detroit. They're selling most of their homes in the West. And so they were looking for a location in the West to move to. Uh, they became aware of the Jumpstart program. And so they came out for a visit, looked at our local area recognize that they qualify for the Jumpstart rural tax incentive, which just means if you locate your business in one of these regions, you can operate up to eight years tax-free. And so they decided to do it. And so they relocated last summer. They're growing very quickly, um, and they've just become a great company here that we're very proud to have. What does the Grand Valley lack? Uh, What are reasons you lose interest Our schools have always been kind of a problem for us. So a lot of our per-pupil funding, you know, the state is already low and Mesa County is at the bottom of that list. Uh, So that, for a lot of companies, when we bring them here and we tour them through the area, they love everything that they see right up until they see our schools. And so that's historically been a problem, recruiting companies, probably our biggest problem, uh, which, again, last November we passed both a mill levy and a bond override. So that was exciting. We're making those changes and trying to help our schools, and specifically our infrastructure. We have some trouble with 
certain types of workforce. Some of the skilled labor is hard to find. I think more than anything, it's just the perception of uh, Grand Junction. People don't realize we have a major university. They don't realize how large our healthcare community is. Um, we have an airport that has six daily direct flights. So I think more than anything, they just assume we're a very small town. Is it your goal to become Denver? For, for, lack no. of a, for, for lack of a better comparison, in other words, I can imagine that there are people in Grand Junction and environs thinking, yeah, we like life the way yep. it is. Yeah. And obviously, in my job, I come up against that a lot. Uh, truthfully, we should be, and the responsible way to grow this state is that Grand Junction should be the next largest metropolitan area in the state. I know people don't want to see that or hear that. A lot of people don't. But we have the room to grow. We're located on the highway. We have the infrastructure and the resources to support that growth. You have the water? Um, we we do have water. <laughs> if I, I shouldn't say anything controversial here, but yes. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, I was going to say if Denver doesn't keep taking our water, we'll have water. <laughs> um, I'm not stepping into the water conversation, but we do. And we have, again, more than anything, we have room to build housing and we have plenty of commercial space. We have plenty of land available to continue to grow. And then what will happen is, yes, one day we'll be too big for some people and we'll push those people out into the smaller communities like Tobac and Colburn and Delta and lift up the entire western slope. We focused a lot on outdoor recreation and companies in that sector. But are you continuing to push for the Jordan Cove pipeline that would move gas from the western slope to Oregon so that it can be transported to Asian markets? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You know, I heard someone else say the other day, and I liked the way I heard it, uh, we want oil and gas to be the icing on the cake, not the cake. Uh, We sit on the second largest natural gas reserve in the country, and so natural gas will always be here. And so to find a steady market for that, like the Asian market, would be fantastic for our community, as opposed to being, you know, beholden to the boom and bust of the commodities market. Uh, So, yes, we would love to see the Jordan Cove project happen. We would love to be able to ship our uh, natural gas out to that market, um, in addition to all the other, you know, industries that we support here. But are those industries fundamentally at odds? You know, I don't think so. I think it's really simple to think that outdoor rec is at odds with oil and gas. And I think Grand Junction can be a national example of where uh, those two industries work really, really well together on mixed use on public lands. Have you heard this nickname, Grand Junktown? Not in a long time. Not in a long time? <laughs> no, I think that kind of went out of, uh, you know, it was it, it was something that I heard from locals um, yeah, Junktown, you know, probably in 2010, 2012, 2015. But there's definitely been a shift in local pride. And um, I don't hear it nearly the way I used to hear it, because I think people see and they feel the change that's happening and, and they're feeling much more optimistic about our future than they were maybe even five years ago. Robin, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Robin Brown directs the Grand Junction Economic Partnership. OK, quick quiz. Where did Grand Junction get its name? I asked that question on Twitter, and Lisi McQuishton got it right. This city is at the junction of the Grand River, what we now call the Colorado, and the Gunnison, thus Grand Junction. Tomorrow, we'll visit the riverfront, which is undergoing a renaissance. How do Coloradans feel about their state? 
That question is at the heart of the new Colorado Community Report Card. The survey digs into all sorts of issues, the cost of housing, health care, and how people perceive government here. This is all important stuff in an election year. Let's dig in with Tim Foster. He's president of Colorado Mesa. It's the big university here in Grand Junction, and CMU helped put this survey together. Nice to see you again. Well, thank you. You too. What stands out to me is that just under half of Colorado adults believe things in this state are headed in the right direction. I don't know. This seemed very promising. Did that surprise you? No, I think if you look at it, it kind of stair steps, and I think that's not surprising. It's they they rank highest those governments lo- closest to them, so special districts, cities, counties. They like those governments. They do, and they like the state government more than they like the federal government. So, I, I think it's also interesting as you segregate and look at you know metro area. And I was surprised how little the metro area liked the federal government. And liked it less even than Western Colorado, which sort of has the sagebrush rebellion kind of image. And all of a sudden, the metro area likes the feds less than the rural parts of the state. I thought that was intriguing. But the closer government is to people, the better they seem to feel about it. Uh, It is also interesting to note the difference uh, between Republicans and Democrats when you ask that question. Is the state headed in the right direction? Yeah, I guess I didn't pay that much attention to it. I was looking at the bigger numbers, but I would imagine that the Republicans saw them less favorably and the Democrats a little more favorable. That's exactly right. And I wonder if, if from this survey... What appears to be working well in Colorado? Let's not make this all negative. What, what is well, working the best? I think it's interesting. Uh, if you look at Western Colorado, which is where we are, safe place to live, 100%, which is outrageous. Good place to raise your kids, good place to raise a family, good place to retire, all ranked very high. Um, the economy a little stronger in the metro area, a little weaker over here. You just had Robin Brown on and and so you see a, a recognition, I think, and some of it's confirming for local governments that, yeah, they think that economy is a big deal. And so that's why they're engaged with Robin and the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, because we've got to raise that wage and earning capacity. But indeed, people generally feel safe in Colorado. That's, I think that's exactly right in varying degrees, but very safe. What are Coloradans frustrated with when you ask them for this survey? See, and I think part of it is is that it, we get into this sense that Colorado is multiple pieces. Mm. You know what I mean? The metro area versus Colorado Springs and Pueblo versus Fort Collins Greeley versus Western Colorado. And they unify on transportation. I think it's a little surprising that they say, oh, my gosh, we have got to do something about transportation. And fairly consistent numbers and, and perspective. This is what unites both sides of the continental divide. And frankly... Uh, people who might be on opposite sides of the political divide as well. I, I suppose that relates to congestion in some of the metro areas and perhaps the quality of roads in some of the rural areas. Well, or if you're over here, you all, to be xenophobic a little bit, yeah. <laughs> you don't notice how often they close Vail Pass as we do. Because I-70 is the art- artery to be biological for western Colorado. Glenwood Canyon... And and Vail Pass. Vail Pass has been closed more in the last four or five years than probably in the last 40 years. And so the inclination now just seems to be, well, we can just close Vail Pass and then we'll get it back reopened. That absolutely crushes Western and rural Colorado. Let me just say that I'm well aware of that because I got stuck at a closure at Vail Pass for many hours. And in fact, it was down to one lane when I was heading 
west to Grand Junction. It added about a half hour to my trip, and I imagine that that gets frustrating for people. Well, or who... even as you drove in, you know, and hit that part of the I seventy that is more like an entertainment ride at Elitch's. We probably should charge you for the how much fun it was, kind of bouncing up and down because of the condition of that road. And so, those are things I think that resonate with people. All over the state. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the president of Colorado Mesa University. That's Tim Foster. CMU helped put together this new Colorado community report card. Gives us a sense of how folks are feeling in this election year, Tim. So control of the state legislature and the governor's office are at stake. Uh, In fact, we just learned who the Republican running mate is. Lang Sias will join Walker Stapleton on the GOP ticket. For the Democrats, it's Jared Polis and Diane Primavera. What might a candidate for the state's highest office make of these results? And I think that's part of why you do this is is to have a policy imperative. We really the the first reason is is to get our students with the that great experience with really practical kind of how do you poll? How do you do a good poll? How do you do a good survey? How do you interpret it? And how do you then present it? Right. But then it's the public service or the state services. How do you break it out by region and show where you have dynamic differences and those sorts of things? Or where do you have consistency? So you would think from a public policy perspective, everybody sees, whew, we have a transportation problem. How they solve it, they can do it differently. Um, Public safety, clearly you'd want to say, wow, we're great. K through 12, you got a mixed bag, college Access, you got a little bit of a mixed bag. Affordability of college and of housing. Those were two big issues. And the housing was is surprising at the at a an instant your instant impression that Western Colorado and rural Colorado also are saying affordability of housing is a problem because we think of housing as being less expensive, but wages are lower. So you have this kind of combination. You got higher wages in Denver, but really expensive housing less expensive, but low wages. So you've got different solutions that you would be crafting for those two parts of the state. And so affordability of housing actually winds up being a sort of unifying statewide issue. Exactly. Uh Exactly. I know in Colorado Springs, for instance, it's not as expensive as Metro Denver, but the growth in the cost of housing has been so meteoric Mm -hmm. that it affects an individual market hugely. Anything else that uh, stands out to you in this survey? I thought the, I, I really I back to where you started. I thought their confidence in local government was heartening. You know, to, for people really to reflect that those people that they're close to, they have a lot of confidence in them. They have a lot of respect for them. I thought the K through twelve um, numbers were good in terms of them having being fairly impressed with that. I'd like you to put your hat on as university president. I guess a little bit more officially. Okay, Colorado Mesa University is building a hotel here. Right. Why is a university getting into the hotel business? So it is similar to this survey. And so we have a hospitality management program. And so it's a small 60-unit hotel that is really a teaching hotel. You think of teaching A hospitals. teaching hotel, yeah. And so it's going to be boutique. And so we, uh, the, our students who come out of there, whether culinary or hospitality management or what have you, have a great experience at a high service level, readily employable. Okay. The hotel's been approved. Before we go... Is Colorado Mesa University as affordable as it should be, given that higher ed and its affordability was a real concern in this survey? I would say no. Um, we have had the lowest tuition increases over the last 10 years, but you sort of get tired of patting yourself on the back. For lower increases. Right. And and we are the second low, least expensive uh, college in the state of Colorado. But it's still, you've gotten up at eight or $9,000 a year. And for the average Coloradan, that's a lot of money. 
And thank so you. We for would like to make it less expensive if we could. Sorry. Thanks so much for your time. Don't don't be sorry. Always a pleasure. He's Tim Foster, president of Colorado Mesa University here in Grand Junction. We talked about this new Colorado community report card. What people throw away, Lyle Nichols turns into art. He has created sculptures for cities like Palisade, Grand Junction, Fruta, and Cheyenne, Wyoming. Lately, he's been downsizing in preparation for retirement. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf takes us to his home near Palisade. Lyle Nichols' yard is filled with an eclectic mix of items like metal coils, slabs of granite and stone, old appliances, and bowling balls. I'm only down to about 200 bowling balls. I had 400. I gave 200 away to another artist who was very pleased. That's right. He had 400 bowling balls and a lot of other stuff collected over the years at yard sales, junkyards, and a few auctions. Sometimes people leave stuff at his gate. But lately, Nichols has been paring down his collection of raw material for his art. He was even on the reality TV show American Pickers recently to get rid of stuff, like this chair made from peachwood branches. What, what would you have to have for it? Oh, I'd take um, 300 bucks. I'm going to do it. He's clearing out his collection because he turned 70 in September. And he's retired. Retirement to me means is I don't do commissions for people anymore. A lot of his work involves hauling heavy materials, like his sculpture Paradox, which he made more than 30 years ago. It weighs 14 tons. It's one of the first pieces I made in my yard. He put it together bit by bit. You know, it's like an ant building an anthill. It isn't like I'm lifting 14 tons. I lift 20 pounds, 30 pounds. That's all. Just putting it together like a giant erector set. Even though he's retired, he says he still gets the urge to create. Nichols was born in the Grand Valley. In 1968, he was drafted into the Army and sent to Vietnam. He eventually landed in Denver, working in construction. And that's where he began seeing possibilities in discards. I just noticed so many things being tossed away, dumpsters full of stuff. And I started making doing woodwork out of scrap lumber out of dumpsters. In 1982, Nichols moved back to the Western Slope. He and his wife purchased a barn just outside of Palisade and converted it into their home. Nichols continued his woodworking, then began using materials like stone, rocks, and steel. He had no formal training, so he's figured it out along the way. His wife, Phyllis Holt, believed in his work enough to cover the bills in the early years. She died from cancer about 15 years ago. Well, the year she died, I sold a sculpture for like $60,000. I wish she was there to see that. You look at these sculptures, and it's a horse, cow, chicken, or whatever creature he's constructed. But when you get close up, you notice something else. Every piece that I put in that had a name or a manufacturer, or something interesting, I tried to make it face out on that particular tool. So hopefully it'll be there a long time, and there'll be inquisitive minds wanting to know a little history. One of his works is a cow named Dolly for the city of Westminster. She sits outside a shopping center, the former site of the Schoenberg Farms Dairy, and she's made up of about 800 tools and equipment parts from the farm. In Grand Junction, you'll find Nichols' sculpture Spike, two elks made out of thousands of railroad spikes. Lori Greger is with the city of Grand Junction and the staff liaison for the Arts and Culture Commission. She says he's an asset to the community in many ways. He's a real ingrained 
part of the art culture here in the Valley. I think almost everyone knows him and just is always willing to help people out with whatever they need. Artist Gary Hauschels is with the Palisade Art Vision, which formed several years ago to promote art in the town's public spaces. Hauschels agrees that Nichols and his art have left a large impression on the area. It's hard to go anywhere in town that you don't have a presence of Lyle. I went to a a hydraulic store for a crane part, and there on the cabinet is a picture of Lyle. Hauschels sits near one of Nichols' sculptures in the Palisade Plaza. It's a fish called Harley, with gills constructed from chrome Harley-Davidson motorcycle mufflers. Hauschel says it often draws the attention of bikers at the nearby saloon. He says Nichols' art is accessible. It's not so esoteric that you're trying to figure out what the modern art is. You look at the piece, you look at the title, and then you, you, you smile. In September, the Palisade Art Vision will give out the first-ever Plug Nichols Award. Named in Lyle Nichols' honor, it will go to someone who has made a significant contribution to the town's public art program. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. When people find out that you're going to be in Mesa County this time of year, inevitably the request comes, will you bring me back some Palisade peaches? But there's so much more that grows out here. Lavender, wine grapes, sage, all ingredients that Chef Josh Nirenberg uses at his two restaurants in downtown Grand Junction, Bin 707 and Taco Party. So this dish is our pasole dish. It's essentially a porchetta. The porchetta is Colorado pork. It's a pork belly wrapped around a pork loin. We cure it and then we smoke it. That's served on top of what we're calling a pozole, which is a, a blue corn hominy that we are procuring from Bone Arrow Farm in Durango. We're bringing here to La Milpa Tortilla Company, who nixtamalizes that corn for us and turns it into the hominy. We use that with a bunch of fresh vegetables, depending on what's on season, whether that's root vegetable or fresh corn, etc., to kind of make a pasole or succotash for the dish. This is our green chili consomme. The idea is that we were doing kind of a, a, a pork broth with green chili to do a play on just like pork green chili for the dish. We um, try to elevate that a little bit by turning that into a consomme and using that broth for the pasole broth itself. And as for those peaches, they're not on the menu yet. We'll be picking up the first of our peaches for the restaurant on Sunday of this week and then start them on the menus next week. So Taco Party, we'll have them on uh, one or two of the different tacos. We'll have them in our guacamole as well. Um, Here we'll use them on all of our cheese and charcuterie boards. They'll come through our duck entree and then, of course, um, the uh, Palisade High Country Orchard's peach cobbler that we do here with bourbon vanilla sauce, probably our most popular dessert. And then finally, something that we do that's really fun and sort of different, we do a drink called the Palisade Peach Pow Wow. We dehydrate the peaches and use the peach powder to flavor one of our cocktails and then serve it with a dehydrated peach chip. Uh, All local spirits with that as well, so, you know, just trying to keep everything out of the valley as much as possible. But they're awesome. We can't wait. And I know our customers are anxiously anticipating. And Chef Josh joins us in our Main Street studio. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you didn't bring me that peach drink. Well, you know, <laughs> soon, soon. Soon, yeah. I understand, indeed, that, that peaches will be on the menu soon, actually a little sooner than you expected. That's right. Tell us what's going on with peaches. Well, we're really hot this year. Um, the, the, that is the temperatures. Yeah, the, the temperatures are just crazy. They're really warm. So uh, the entire growing season is a little strange. Cherries were super quick. Apricots came and actually held out a little longer than they usually do. 
And the peaches, for us, we're seeing them probably two, three weeks early. I see. Uh, so that people who are anxious for them will get them sooner. Oh, indeed. absolutely. Uh, and I think there's a lot of them this year. A function of the heat. I love that idea of putting peaches in tacos. It had never occurred to me, but in a way it becomes a substitute for tomatoes, I guess. Yeah, exactly. You know, we use uh, we use everything that you normally would to build a taco, but try to source that out of the Grand Valley. So whether that means that we're in, uh, substituting grapes for limes, for the lime juice or peaches in the tacos in place of tomatoes. Yeah, we just try to find a way to showcase the Grand Valley. Have you ever had a peach failure? Uh, I think so. Okay. I think it's, it's easy to have a peach failure. You know, they're not, they're pretty easy to work with, but sometimes they can be problematic. So we just have to be consistent with our sourcing, and that's really, that saves us. Can you give me an example of a peach failure? Um, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, you are a little bit. That's uh-huh. all right. Uh, you know, we have kind of experimented with our cobbler through the years. So we've had some um, recipes that worked better than others. Your and, cobbler. Yeah. So the peach cobbler that we use at Ben, which is by far our most popular dessert. Um, early on, we had some that were really soft. We were kind of overcooking or using overripe peaches. So we've we've adjusted. We've gotten better. I want to talk to you about the the ingredients you get in the Grand Valley. And I know that that some farmers grow things sort of special for your restaurants. Can, yeah. can you give me some examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've we've been on this mission of using locally sourced and um, you know, Colorado products for almost 8 years now. So the relationships that we've built with our farmers um are just fantastic. So you know, one, in, for instance, is uh, uh, Blaine from Blaine's Tomatoes. He's famous for his heirloom tomatoes, but he grows all kinds of just fantastic stuff. And we work so closely with him, kind of hand in hand, that, you know, he'll find a seed that he wants to grow and bring it to us and ask if we have interest, or we'll find something that we're interested in, bring it to him. We work with him on, you know, different harvesting specs and really just dial in our produce with him. Not all tomatoes are created equal. This is, is what, true. Is what I'm hearing this in that. So what, you would ask him for a, a different flavor profile or what? Well, for his tomatoes, we let him do his thing. He is, he is the expert for tomatoes. But, you know, we'll, be, we'll buy, whether it's herbs, he's growing shiso for us this season. Say he that again? Shiso. Okay. Which I is kind of a Japanese mint. A Japanese mint. Uh-huh. Um, we've... Several years ago, he started um, uh, growing popcorn shoots for us, which are these really sweet, almost fluorescent yellow little shoots that we use. Um, How do you use them, popcorn shoots? So the the shoot is, um, it's almost stevia sweet. It has almost an artificial sweetness. They're wild, but they're great, and they've got a really nice, bright freshness. And we use them on the pozole dish that I was talking about previously. We use them in the guacamole at Taco Party. Pozole, I think of as being more of a savory dish, but you add a little sweet. Well, there, you know, it's still shoot. It's still like a like a microgreen almost, but it just has a little bit of this sweetness because it's the fresh corn. What can't you get in either the Grand Valley or in Colorado that you wish you could? You know, I think seafood is probably the the <laughs> okay, hardest yes. battle, and I think that's that's kind of an obvious answer. But you know, we have seafood that brings in directly. Um, that flies in because we have an airport here. So we are able to get our hands on fantastic seafood. But the sourcing in the seafood industry as a whole is is a little dicey right now. So we have such fantastic meats. It's so easy to be meat and potatoes all day long. Hmm. There's a lot of focus on Palisade peaches, but you think the apricots here Mm-hmm. should get more attention, I understand. I, I'm okay if they don't get any more attention, because oh. that means there's more for us to use. <laughs> but we, I just love them. They're so great. Um, you know, they're... 
they're kind of the early uh, fruit that comes in before the peaches that kind of gets everybody ramped up. They're a little bit sweeter than the peaches. Wouldn't that mean we're in apricot season now? We are smack dab in the middle of it. I know what I'm doing after we get off the air. (laughs) You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, we are broadcasting from the Western Slope, and we wanted to meet... Chef Josh Nirenberg, while we were here, he has two restaurants in downtown Grand Junction, Bin 707 and Taco Party. You moved to Grand Junction after working in Denver restaurants for many years. Uh, Your wife is from this area. Uh, And the two of you opened a version of Bin 707 right around the Great Recession, which you say hit the Grand Valley especially hard. That's right. Tell us about that time. Well, when we first moved here, we opened the restaurant by the name of Bin 707 Food and Wine. Um, the economy was completely driven by oil and gas at the time. It was kind of a high-end steakhouse. Uh, when the recession hit, all of those things changed. The restaurant industry changed. Um, beef prices started to go through the roof. The oil and gas pulled out of our economy in a huge way. We looked throughout the state to see what we wanted to do next, if that concept even made sense anymore. And we decided that we had the opportunity to kind of keep that concept of Ben 707, but uh, sort of double down, take the high-end steakhouse out of it, but keep the service component, um, keep the emphasis on wine, but turn that all into local sourcing. We saw a great opportunity to do that um, as kind of an economic driver. So to create jobs within the economy, to keep our spending dollars as close to home as possible. But I think you had to close for a time. Yeah, we did. We started out um, on Horizon Drive, which is by I-70, which you know most people would get off the highway and think that's all there is of Grand Junction. And we moved downtown and found a new location. We were closed for seven months and reopened as Bin 707 Food Bar in February 2011. What made you want to stay? You know, kind of comparison. Um, and looking throughout the rest of the state, and this is a state, you know, I'm a, I'm a fourth-generation native, as is my wife. We love it here. But looking throughout the state, we just decided that Grand Junction was where we wanted to be. We had access to produce. We had access to fantastic um, farmers, ranchers, of course, Colorado wine, um, and then the quality of life here. You know, it's it's the access to the outdoors is incredible. You have a sleeve of tattoos done by a local artist, and it's of the Western Slope ingredients that you cook with. Yeah. Tell us what's on your arm. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet this a little later. Sure. So we've got uh, we've got some beets. We've got a couple of different kinds of beets. We've got some beets Swiss grow chard. Here. Yep. We grow beets here. Um, Swiss chard. Okay. We have some Swiss chard. We have some honeycomb. We've got some wine grapes. Uh, we've got a chef knife that was a gift for my wife and my wedding. That's kind of the, the backbone of the whole tattoo. I've got some pork. Um, You've and got some pork. <laughs> I have some mon- two, basically two mantras. One is adapt, persevere, and conquer, and the other one is quality, dedication, and te- uh, technique. Quality, dedication, and technique. Those seem like important things for a chef. Sure. Uh, well, do you think the food scene in Grand Junction gets the credit it deserves? Do you think that not being in the metro area or maybe one of the resort communities, you know, an Aspen or a Vale, does that put you on the outs in the chef community or or what? You know, I I don't think that it gets the credit that it deserves, but it is changing. Um, One thing that we do here fantastically well, we are far enough outside of Denver media, so to speak, that we're able to kind of write our own ticket and um, use our own sourcing and create our own kind of excitement for stuff. So as a community, it really lets us be different than what's happening. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Josh Nirenberg is executive chef of Bin 707 Food Bar and Taco Party in downtown Grand Junction. 
Like I said earlier, when people find out you're coming here, the topic quickly becomes Palisade Peaches. And one listener, Eric, reached out to us on Twitter asking for a cobbler recipe. Good news. Nirenberg shared one with us, and you'll find it later today at CPR.org. The band Mount Orchid is at the forefront of Grand Junction's indie music scene. Since forming in 2015, the quartet's become one of the city's most visible live bands at small house shows and at Western Colorado's largest concert venues. This is from the band's most recent release, an EP called Wallflower Child. Mount Orchid performs next month at the local jam festival here in Grand Junction, and I'm joined in our Main Street studio by bassist and co-founder David Goh. Welcome to the program. Hey, good morning. And keyboardist Cord Merez. Hey, Cord. Thanks for having us. You were my soundtrack as I drove here on I-70, by the way. Awesome. Sweet. Thanks. I would describe your music often as, as dreamy. What do you think of that term? You know, that's funny that you mentioned that because we used to have a band called Dream Boat. Uh, that was the precursor to Mount Orchid. So I would say Dreamy is a, it's an apt comparison. That's what you're going for. What are the elements that make it Dreamy? Why am I hearing that? You know, I think uh, one of the big things is we have a couple of unique instruments that we play. Chord actually plays something called the Omnichord, which is those kind of dreamy twinkles. Wait, you share a name with the instrument? Yeah, very similar. <laughs> chord and chord. Tell us about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's kind of the electronic version of an auto harp, if you know what that is. And uh, it sounds like kind of this magic music box. And that gives it a bit of a dreamy quality. Yeah, it's sort of the twinkles that are on top of the music. Uh, we also, everybody in the band sings, except for the drummer. So we do a lot of like harmonies and vocal harmonies and things like that to kind of give it that kind of full-bodied aura. Your harmonies are on fleek. As the, oh. ki- as, the kids, as the kids say, they probably don't say that anymore. But the harmonies are really beautiful. I think they Thanks. add to that that layering, that dreamy layering. I understand that when you started Mount Orchid, it was just a studio recording project. You weren't playing live shows. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Billy, the lead singer and the lead guitarist, and I, um, we've been in the band the longest. And we were, like I said, we're in a band called Dreamboat, which uh, kind of ran its course. It broke up. And uh, we had some songs that we wanted to do something with, but we didn't have a full band to actually, you know, play out and gig with. So we just decided to go to the studio and record them. It, was it hard to find musicians? It can be. Uh, specifically in this town, it's hard to find drummers for some reason. Oh. Uh, all the good drummers are already, uh, like, poached by other bands. Uh, so that was really the thing that kind of kept us from playing out live. We got Chord. Uh, Chord came in. He plays keyboard and uh, Omnichord, like we talked about. And uh, he really added a lot to the band, and we were just waiting for that drummer to come in before we started playing. Chord, tell me about how you were discovered here by the, by the, by the band, and in general, like the, the networking of musicians out here. Yeah, um, so I was actually uh, grabbed by Billy from a coffee shop where I worked, where he would come in all the time, uh, called Roasted. And um, and then Billy is Billy Pogany, who's the vocalist. Yes, yeah. So he came in, and he had heard that I had played music, uh, and he just asked me one day if I he needed someone to play that Omni chord, 
and uh, just for a show, he said, hey, can you learn a few songs real quick? And so I went, practiced with a, with these guys a couple of times and then played a show, and then that just gradually evolved into me playing keys as well and uh, just getting on, you know, full-time with the guys. Okay, I, I want to hear some more music before sure. I ask more questions. Uh, this is more from the EP Wallflower Child. Great title. This is Blue Light. Okay, Cord, this one's a little darker, maybe a little more downbeat. Yes. Yes. What's going on in this song? And I wonder, if, after you play a song 20, 30, 40 or more times, uh, how, how your relationship with it changes? Uh, yeah, so when we start, Billy just kind of gives us a, just kind of the skeleton of a song, uh, just what he's written. He usually has lyrics and everything in his guitar part and just adds us to layer it in. And uh, I don't necessarily know where the kind of the darkness in it comes from. It's just maybe where everyone is in their life at the time. But uh, we just start layering in, and it just comes up into like a full song. And uh, so he, he that's gives what you, you the hear. outlines. Yeah, and yeah, then definitely. you get creative license to fill that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just play through it a few times, and you know, we just actually it usually starts as a jam. He's just playing, and we all just layer in and add in, and then eventually that ends up being what we record after we play through it a few times. It sounds really fun, actually. Tell me about where you recorded this EP. It was at a nearby studio called sure. Fusion Audio Solutions, uh, and t- describe the setting. Yeah, so uh, Taylor Riley is a good friend of ours. He runs Fusion Audio Solutions, uh, and it's really in a nondescript suburban neighborhood. It's just a house. It's just a house. It's a house. He uh, converted the back bedrooms into one of them is the control room, and then the other back bedroom is the the live room. And uh, I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure he just moves his mattress out of the way when people come in <laughs> to actually record. He just throws it up against the wall. Was it a good environment for recording that it's so casual? Yeah, he's really great to work with because uh, there's not any like time constraints, uh, so it's really easy to get in there and work with him, and it feels really casual. I do want to reflect on the music scene in general here. Uh, who are your favorite other acts, bands in Grand Junction on the Western Slope, and, and how would you assess the scene here? Sure. I think the scene here is more robust than a lot of people are are that know about uh there's a lot of great bands here uh some of them that come to mind are uh bands like bronco country tim and richard uh zoloft is a great band uh we play with a band called freeway donna a lot so there's a lot of different music here and most of the bands i think are pretty good and they hold up you mentioned zoloft that's right yeah. we actually have a little zoloft cool Cord, who would you name and how would you describe the scene? 
Um, yeah, like Dave said, it's uh, there's a lot more going on here than a lot of people understand. Uh, just being like the smaller part of Colorado, less known in general. Um, but yeah, this the same kind of band Zoloft. Uh, you've got Bronco Country and Freeway Donna that are doing a really good job. Tight Thump plays some some funk shows. Tight Thump. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, just a few other small groups, Clyde and the Mill Tailors. Yeah, um, they're great. Just uh, kind of keep the scene alive right now. Chris, touring bands come through uh, because you've got I-70 here, and I, I think you guys opened for Collective Soul, the alternative rock band out of Atlanta, yeah. just down the street at the Avalon Theater. That was actually a trip, and really the only reason that we got that show is because last summer we were able to play on CPR's open air, and uh, they somehow came across those videos and they were looking for an opener for the show. And because we had those videos, they plucked us up. Exciting experience. It was crazy. I mean, that's the biggest venue in town. I think it holds like 1,200 people or something like that. So I like to joke like we sold out the Avalon. When, <laughs> when in reality, we were like put on at the very last minute. But where do you where, just briefly, we have about 20 seconds, Cord. Where do you want the music scene to go? Um, I just want people to kind of know that we have a lot here in Western Colorado and uh, maybe have some more touring bands come through. Which provides that opportunity to open for them. Absolutely. It gets Showcase us the, the local good shows. Talent. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you. David Go and Cord Morez are members of the band Mount Orchid. Their latest release is the Wallflower Child EP. The band performs next month at the local jam festival in Grand Junction. You can watch Mount Orchid's recent session in the CPR Performance Studio at CPR.org. On Main Street in Grand Junction, I'm Ryan Warner for Colorado Matters and CPR News.